0: You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Isle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Isle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: It'll be better when I get out it'll be better when I get out and, and you can kind of fantasize about you know or believe how much better you know you're like you're just going to jump from that right back into a regular routine
2: those are the things that I think people can say okay well we have to help those folks and we definitely do
3: this is Dr. Lisa Belial and you're listening to Love, Main Radio show number 212 Homeward Bound airing for the first time on Sunday October 11th 2015 Our homes provide us with much more than safety and warmth. They offer a place to retreat from a sometimes chaotic world and nourish our souls. Unfortunately, homelessness is an ongoing and ever-present issue in Maine. Today, we speak with Navy veteran and Preble Street advocate Thomas Patacek, who experienced a year of homelessness, and with Camden National Bank President Greg Dufour about an innovative program called Hope at Home. Thank you for joining us.
0: Love, Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Main seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants the front room, the grill room, and the corner room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bringing the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit therumasportland.com.
3: There are many important things in our community that um, we have difficulty grappling with. And one of these is homelessness. It's something that I think all of us in Maine and probably all over the world are aware exists, and yet we don't really know how to work with it. It, It's something that we... um, well, it's, it's been a struggle. This next guest that I'm speaking with today, he knows the struggle and he knows it in a way that most of us could barely even fathom. This is Tom Potosik, who is Preble Street's Veterans Healthcare Outreach Community Organizer. Tom, a veteran of the US Navy, has experienced homelessness and was an advocate for Homeless Voices for Justice. Tom is also on the boards for Community Housing of Maine and the Milestone Foundation. Tom, we're really privileged to have you here today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
3: So you've been dealing with some, you've had a lot of stuff go on in your life. Back me up to where are you from?
1: Well, I I guess I would say that I am from Kansas. That's where I've spent uh, most of my life, but moved around a lot as as a, a kid and moved around a lot as an adult. Um, and actually, here here next year, um, Maine will be the place that I've lived the longest continuously. It'll be um, 10 years. Still another year or to, two to beat the total time in in Kansas, but, but yeah, it'll be the place that I've been the longest continuously. So yeah, I, I say I'm from Kansas, but kind of all over.
3: <laughs> and how did you make your way into the U.S. Navy?
1: um i uh was 20 um had you know gone to college and then you know not not really my thing um you know left was figuring on going back but not right away and was you know working and, and just uh, you know in when you're when you're from Kansas, I guess the Navy can seem kind of exciting <laughs> since you're nowhere near an ocean um, and and so I just uh, kind of on a whim just like ah, I'm gonna join the Navy I guess and and you know I'm I'm glad I did. Um, it certainly got me through my early 20s, um, you know with structure and, and discipline. I wasn't really able to do anything too stupid because because the price is really high if you're in the military um, you know and and grew up a little I'd say I probably got what I needed out of it after a couple years you know so then I still had a couple more years to to serve um, but you know and then, it was a long time before I ever availed myself of, of any veteran services. I, you find you find a lot in, in the veteran community that you know we have this really high bar we set as for, for you know being a veteran. And so for someone like me, you know I while I did serve during, the Desert Storm period. I didn't. I didn't go over there. I was a psychiatric technician. I worked in a hospital. Um, so you know, I look at people that you know served in combat. You know, a, a Vietnam combat veteran. That's a veteran. I'm not. I'm not that. And there's and there's a lot of that in in the veteran community where where we just well, you know, I didn't do all these things that other people did. So they're the real veterans. And so a lot of times you know there are services available to veterans out there but they don't access them Um, and i and i never i never did including including the gi bill which i paid into when i got out of the navy i went back to college and um you know still didn't didn't access that um and it wasn't until i was you know stuck in oxford street shelter for a year and there was an influx of money into the VASH program, and a VASH voucher is essentially Section Eight, but specifically for veterans, um, since so veterans assisted subsidized housing. Um, and you know, so when when the program got this influx of money, they were literally scouring the shelters across the country looking for veterans who were who were stuck in in homeless. Uh, in homeless shelters um, and you know at that point I was like you know you're right I'm a veteran you know if it's gonna get me out of the shelter um, then absolutely I'm a, I'm a veteran and you know and since then I, I have um, you know accessed some services I go to the uh, community-based outpatient clinic what's called CBOC which is the the veterans clinic that opened up here a handful of years ago Um, where I go for you know mental health stuff I don't I often I often say that I'm not sure if my year of homelessness broke something in me or if it simply brought to bear things that were always there but in good times just never noticed Obviously, wherever I was at emotionally at the beginning of that year, vastly different from where I was at emotionally at the end of that year. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, d- depression and self-esteem stuff. And 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 I, f- I finally decided to, you know, look into that and, and see someone about that, which is, you know, obviously a tough step for for people and you know if you're if you're struggling whether it's in you know poverty or or with homelessness or mental health issues or addiction you know whatever you're you're struggling with it can be you know and whether you're a veteran or not um, you know it can it can be difficult to to seek um, those those services you often don't necessarily know what's available Oftentimes when you do go to seek some services, there are, you know, long waiting lists and and so you get discouraged. That's. um, Well, I'm wondering how old you are. I am.
3: If you mind telling us. Yeah, no, I
1: don't. don't Here in a couple months, I'll be 49.
3: Okay. And it's interesting to me that the Navy recognized pretty early on that you somehow had skills that would put you um, that would make a good psychiatric technician.
1: Yeah, that was something. I mean, that was something I I chose to do. I actually, when I joined, I wanted to be a photographer's mate. Um, I had a he, really big interest in photography at the time, and I knew that you know school wasn't. I mean, if, if a class really, you know, really gains my interest, I do really well, but if it doesn't, I just, I, you know, I like I don't even go to the class and I don't officially drop it and it's just a mess. But so I knew that school maybe wasn't the right path for that, so I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll go in the Navy, I'll be a photographer's mate, I'll learn everything I need to know and be able to come out and, you know, jump right into, into work. Um, and apparently I had no idea at the time, but apparently I'm colorblind. And so they wouldn't let me be a photographer's mate because, you know, you're working in a dark room and things are coded or whatever. So so and and by that time I was far enough in the process that I was starting to get a little psyched about this adventure I was about to go on. So um I, I you know just looked down at what else is there you know that I could I could do, and my father's degrees are in research psychology, so I kind of grew up with you know an, an understanding of you know human behavior, and, and so I thought oh, well that sounds good. I did not know at the time that while I chose that that was not guaranteed. Um, you know I had to go to. to basic core school, you know, where you learn to, you know, draw blood and start IVs and pass meds and all that stuff and and then applied for psych school and it essentially comes down to Do they need psych techs? If they need psych techs, you'll get in if they don't you won't Um, Some people will choose four or five different things so that they get something rather than being a regular corpsman Um, But I just chose that. Luckily they they needed them. Um,
3: So was it interesting to you, as you went down your own personal path, was it interesting to you that you had at one point been a Psych Tech and that eventually you decided to access services for yourself?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, I didn't... I kind of was a bit of a sponge when I was um, there. I, I worked a majority of my time on the overnight shift. And when the the duty doctor would come up to to work on the charts for that day or whatever, I would just sit in the office with them and, and ask you know question after question you know with in, in concern with patients and, and treatment, and it it was something that I had a natural ability for the the one thing that I that I did not truly understand when I when I left is in regards to depression and especially clinical depression you would hear the words helplessness and hopelessness a lot and and part of it was probably my age but you know I just I didn't understand how you could be completely without hope I mean I understood sadness slash depression understood bad things happening and and you know it, it it, it affected you. That I got, but how you could be completely without something didn't didn't make sense to me. And it wasn't really until, you know, halfway through my my time at the Oxford Street Shelter, that I got it. it you know, it is completely possible to be completely without hope and to completely feel like you can't be. Um, and that's, you know, that's why there's no easy fix. Um, I, you know, I often tell people that, you know, when, when I got out of the shelter, when I got my place, it actually was, a, emotionally speaking, a bit of a step backwards. Because while you're in the shelter, in order to survive, you kind of got to get on autopilot. And, you know, you find ways to exist, you know, make it from day to day to day. Um, And so you're not not thinking about certain things. I wasn't thinking about the fact that I no longer owned furniture, that I no longer owned, you know, a TV or a stereo. I no longer owned, you know, a closet full of clothes. None of that entered into my mind because I had nowhere to put that stuff. And then when I got my place and I'm, you know, coming home every night and I'm you know sleeping on the floor and there's no furniture in there and and you know that's when it all kind of hit me that's like okay this is how far you have fallen. because there's always when you're in the shelter it'll be better when I get out it'll be better when I get out and, and you can kind of fantasize about you know or believe how much better you know you're like you're just gonna jump from that right back into a regular routine and and so you kind of hold on to that hope and then you get out and that's not how it is you know and so now it's like the reality of just how much farther i have to crawl back and you know it seems like that process there's 30, 30 first steps and you can't take 30 first steps you know so so it it it's really overwhelming
3: you know that's a really interesting point, I think about people who come to see me um, for whatever behavior they're trying to change, and they think, okay, once I reach my goal, once I've lost my 20 pounds, once I've gotten out of my bad marriage, once I've gotten to that place, then everything is going to open up and it's all Mm going to be great. And you're talking about a pretty, uh, I guess, more extreme form of that, like once I get my home... Then it's all going to become clear. Yeah. But you're right. There's. It just is another. It just opens up the door, and then there's another door, and then there's yeah. another door. Yep. Yeah. So I kind of love hearing that. Actually, it's just. It just just reminds us that we're all basically in the same place. If we're trying to change a circumstance, this. It's yeah. just a process. Yeah.
1: And and that's that's why um, here recently over the last year or, or so, there's been a real concerted effort in ensuring that there are services that go along with and follow people as they you know, get housing and, and come out of the shelter where everyone's starting to, to realize that as difficult as it can be sometimes to house someone, especially here in, in Portland, there's not a lot of vacancies, um, oftentimes the really hard work can be helping that person to maintain that housing and 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 stay there and that's and that's part of it is is you know you have a bunch of new things to to deal with and some some realizations you know when you when you get there and it's uh, you know I like to to talk about I mean obviously as as human beings you know we strive to be comfortable with with who we are and and where we are and we will find ways to to justify the the decisions we we make and and so you know I know and I can't speak for anyone else but I know for for me you know when when you're here and there's nothing to lose and maybe your investment isn't huge the math makes sense But as you, as you start to invest in yourself and make small steps up, it seems like what you stand to lose is so much greater. And so it can be really difficult. You know, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, when I was, when I was in the shelter, I mean, and there, and there were, there were a variety of issues that, that were kind of combining to. To keep me there but I also knew because I knew how I got there you know with you know low-paying jobs and and just living right on the edge and and the only way I really even survived is because I had an employer that didn't really care so they would work me 70 80 hours a, a week but obviously that that can only last so long um, but you know my thought was wow you know I mean if I go I go get this job for seven, seven fifty an hour, you know how long is that gonna last? And and you know if that falls through, I'm gonna be back in the shelter, you know because I have I, I haven't been able to save anything. I'm not gonna be able to to survive. And 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 when I when I do, you know I mean I'm just barely going to be making it i'm probably going to have to decide where oh well you know maybe maybe the landlord will let me slide on 20 bucks for a little while or you know not pay the not pay the full electric bill and it starts piling up and and you know that's just so overwhelming and that's not where you want to scratch and claw to get to you know so just having having those services that that follow you and and that allow you to do things it in in a good in a time frame that's good for for you I know I I benefited greatly because I you know when I join homeless voices for justice and there's a you know there's a small stipend that goes along with that but it's not you know you're not making a, a ton of money Um, but you know I did that for a few years. and you know it, I was able to connect with with people in the in the you know service provider industry and kind of show my skill level and the things I can do and, and felt felt respected and needed. and and that allowed me to get to a place that when I when I went back into full-time employment, it was, it, it, it was a good move. It was a move that I felt good about. It was a move that I knew I was supported in. And, and I, you know, you still, you never really leave that time homeless behind. I mean, I'm about six years removed from being homeless. And I, you know, I still think about it. I look at my, I look at my, you know, bank account and I think, man, if, if, if things fall through, if I, you know, lose my job, you know, I got maybe a month that I can make it before I start, you know, not, not being able to pay my rent. And, 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 and then my thought, oh man, I can't go back to the shelter. I can't go back to the shelter, you know? So you never quite put that, that behind, but you know, I, I, I feel percent confident that had I had tried something earlier had I have you know taken you know some low paying job in an effort to to get out um, I I would have wound up back there there's there's no doubt in my mind I just wasn't in I wasn't in a place where I could just really kinda take it all in and make sense of it and and you know Work basically.
3: So it sounds like you're saying that it's it's not just the job itself; it's the mindset, it's the uh, it's sort of the psychological approach and the emotional wherewithal to kind yeah. of stay with something.
1: Yeah. If if you're, you know, if you're depressed and your self-esteem has taken this huge hit, um, you know, it, it's hard to go out there and and take what the day brings on and not not have it affect you adversely I mean it's it's always obviously it's something you have to deal, and it's something you know that I have to deal with every every day now but I in I'm in a place now and I've and I have sought the services that I need now to make to make a good go of that you know it it obviously as I was you know talking about before um, you know that where where you know people try and get comfortable with with you know where they're at and what their life is like and that's that's one of the things that I want people to understand cuz you know every now and then I hear people that you know they'll they'll see someone using you know their EBT card at the store or they'll hear hear someone talking on the street and and you know, they they come away with the impression that people are happy with, with what with with where they're at and, and 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 they're oh yeah, I don't care, you know, I'm 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 just kicking it. I'm having a good time. I get this, I get this. And that's that's just someone trying to be comfortable with where they're at. I mean, is someone going to say, Oh wow man, I suck. My life sucks. I, I, I hate this. I'm 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 nothing. I'm worthless. I mean that happens inside, believe me. But but you know that's not how people are going to present it. You, you know, so someone I I hate to think that someone just trying to make it and be okay with where they're at is is giving someone the ability to to think that that that's that's what that person wants.
3: That's a you know I, that's a really good point. This is something that I'm. As you're talking, because this often happens when the guests come in, I uh, all think, "Is this something that I do? Is this some, is this a judgment I make? Is this have I had these thoughts before?" And I do think that you know when we see that someone is pretty down on their luck, that we almost expect, well you know they should be grateful for whatever they have or mm. you know whatever we whatever whatever we're so benevolently caring to give them yeah. they should be grateful for and they're probably feeling really crummy right now and you know we're really just there's a lot of superimpositions and projections that we are putting on other people not just assuming you know they're probably just like us they're probably yeah. just trying to make their way in the day
1: yeah
3: i don't know i guess i was a lot of kind of disparate thoughts but i really this is really hitting home for me
1: yeah that and and that's you know something that that I I want people to understand too is is because you'll hear people talk about choices that people are making. You know, and when you know if you have someone who you know flies a sign on on, on the meeting or whatever and and gets um, you know some money and then then goes and buys some alcohol and 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 they go, well, that's the choice. He's making that choice. He's, he's, this is happening because these are the choices he's making. But what I really, really want people to understand is that in order to make choices, you have to see options. And if you don't see options, then you're not making a choice. Um, and so someone who's just existing, you know, getting through the day, the way that they best know how, that's not not something that they're choosing to do. Obviously, you know, we're all human beings. And as human beings, dreams and desires occur within us naturally. And so you have to think, what had to happen to someone? Where does someone have to be emotionally for those naturally occurring dreams and desires to have died? And, and that's, that's why it's such, it's such tough work and, and why, you know, just being there and, and keeping the door always open for them and, and having patience and letting them work, work through that is, is the best way to do it. Cause it's, it's not just as simple as, oh, Hey, you know, get off the street and, and take this house and everything will be fine.
3: Now, tell me about the Milestone Foundation. I know that you, you just recently joined the board there, and yep. this is important to you. Why?
1: Um, you know, they the the Milestone uh, Shelter really works with some of the the most vulnerable members of our community. Um, Milestone is um, the, essentially Milestone is the shelter that you can be presently intoxicated um, heavily intoxicated and and go to Um, so so they really are working with a really vulnerable uh, portion of the community and it's so necessary and so needed and you know I've been fortunate enough you know through through the times that I was staying at Oxford Street and you know utilizing Preble Street during the day and then being around Preble Street all the time you know when I was with HVJ and then now in my in my current position you know I've been able to see you know people that are struggling with addiction when they've got a grasp on that Um, and you know it's just it's this reminder that there's this really great person there and and it's it's well worth our efforts to try and create a system where they can can get there you know we can't we can't make that happen we can't bring it about but the system has to be pliable enough and and understanding enough and compassionate enough to to allow them Access to it and and the process in which to do it and it and it's the same You know even if even if there aren't addiction issues there, you know I mean, I I didn't have addiction issues. I didn't have severe mental health issues um, Yet I still was at the shelter for a year, you know, I still had Nine months or whatever after I got out of the shelter before I got connected with Homeless Voices for Justice. I was still with Homeless Voices for Justice for a couple of years before I, you know, got back into full-time employment. And you know, all along the way, whether it's whether it's someone like Preble Street or whether it's um, a, a federal or state program, all along the way, investments were, were made in me, and, and you know, those investments are really paying off now.
3: After listening to our conversation, I'm sure people are going to want to do something. Well, I'm hoping people are going to want to do something. How do people learn more about the work that you do at Preble Street or the work that Preble Street does in general?
1: Um, well, Preble Street uh, has a lot of volunteer programs, um, so you can always contact Preble Street to, to see what you can do obviously um, donations of of any kind um, help socks socks are big um, I know well and I know I'll just throw this out there because when I was there it was it, w- it was funny but the one thing that never seemed to get donated was deodorant that was really hard to come by, you know. Socks you could you could get. There were you know shampoo, soap, you know, toothpaste. You could get those things, but man, deodorant was tough. Um, so let me throw that out. Um, and but but the the best thing that that someone can do is to get involved politically and 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 make your make your voice heard. Because it all depends on the system that's in place. You know, Preble Street or Opportunity Alliance or Milestone or Community Housing of Maine, Vesta Housing. You know, it, all these people trying to do good things can only do so much dependent upon the system that's in place. Um, so so becoming active and making your voice heard and, and letting it be known that... that You know there is belief in and support for you know a good safety net and a safety net that that provides people with with those avenues to success
3: well i've learned a lot from our conversation i hope that other people who have listened to it um will make their voices heard perhaps donate some deodorant or socks there you go (laughs) or volunteer some time or even just just think more about what all of this means and what it means to each of us as individuals. Um, I really, you know, this has been just an amazing conversation. We've been speaking with Thomas Batasic, who is Preble Street's Veterans Healthcare Outreach Community Organizer. Tom, thanks so much for your time and for all the work you've done, and I'm really glad to have you in our community.
1: Thank you again for having me.
0: Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the Apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by their store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland. And experience pharmacy care the way that is meant to be. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to M A C.
3: Here on Love, Maine Radio, we've spent a considerable amount of time thinking about our communities and the types of things that our neighbors really need in order to live sustainably in Maine. One of these is food, and one of these is shelter. Greg Dufour has similarly been thinking about shelter. He is the president of Camden National Bank. Greg believes that the strength of the bank is only as strong as the communities they serve. Recently, he saw a growing need for assistance and conceived of the innovative Hope at Home program. For every home it finances, Camden National Bank donates $100 to a homeless shelter in the community of the new homeowner, providing support and hope to neighbors living without a home. Thanks for coming in today, Greg.
2: It's my pleasure.
3: So as I said, we think about kind of basic human needs, food, shelter, I would add in there companionship. Um, obviously, banks don't do a lot about companionships necessarily, but you're working on homelessness. Yes. How did these two things get connected?
2: Well, it was actually a personal experience. And it started with uh, last year in February, I was driving to work uh, every day and uh and notice this one little motel that seemed to have its parking lot full, which in, in Rockport, Maine, uh, is a little bit unique in, in February. And it, I just kind of kept on driving by. And then one day on my uh, way to work at Camden National, I was running a little late and I was behind the school bus, and the school bus stopped in front of this motel. And it was a cold February morning and I saw about a half a dozen kids get on the school bus. And I couldn't figure out why. And so I started asking around the community. I got to know uh, Stephanie Prim with the Knox County uh, Homeless Association. And she said that's where they put some families who are homeless in this little motel. And it struck me that here I am fortunate to have a job that I'd love going to work to in a community that is great, but is also known for being picturesque and, and in, in main terms affluent. Yet here are these homeless people literally right under my nose, and I said something needed to be done. It was such a a different thing going on uh, around me, and so I went to the bank, and fortunately, Canada National, uh, being a community bank, we do a lot uh, donating to various organizations, and we were looking for something to get behind in the organization that would be, we could focus on, but something that maybe other organizations uh, haven't been focusing on as well. You know, a lot of great worthy causes throughout the state, they get a lot of support, Camden supports a lot of those uh, efforts as well, but we really didn't see one organization stepping forward to devote some time and energy behind homelessness. And so that's how it all started and then kind of brainstorming happened and and we created this program uh, where When somebody purchases a home, finances it through us, we donate $100 in the customer's name if they choose to to the nearest homeless shelter. And we did that so we can make a connection between somebody going through the joy of homeownership and helping somebody at the same time in their community. And it was really part of that advocacy part that I think is truly unique about this program.
3: It sounds like in my conversation with you, you were surprised by the number of Uh, homeless shelters around the area that your bank serves
2: it it really is and when you're in Portland uh, there's a lot of there's Preble Street that is very visible and does a lot of great work and Bangor they have two or three large shelters and as we've been going out and actually giving checks to the uh, local homeless shelters I get amazed by going into some of the communities uh, especially in rural Maine, where there is a homeless shelter there, or a group of people trying to, uh, you know, address homelessness, and it's shocking. It's really still kind of under our nose. You may say, well, what are do they doing that business? Why are there, you know, cars there, and some could be homeless shelters, and not only the, the physical buildings, but the people that are dedicating their lives to helping the homeless. It's it's truly amazing. It's truly something that is eye-opening to me.
3: It is striking um the contrast between the school bus and the hotel where people are living. I, I, you're right about especially Portland. there's it's more it seems more evident that people don't necessarily have a place to live. And perhaps even I have had some preconceived notions about people who are homeless people who might choose to live on the street or, um, be forced to live on the street. But what you're talking about are families. You're you're not talking about perhaps people with mental illness or people with addiction issues or people who have just gotten out of being incarcerated. You're talking about families who need a place to live, who need a place that they can put their kid on the school bus. Um,
2: well, we're we're actually talking about now everyone. I'll admit that uh, as I personally started this effort of my own personal effort of learning about homelessness, it was about the families and it was about the children that are homeless. Maybe, maybe it's a good thing they're in a motel versus better than being in a car living. But as you, as I should, as I should phrase it, got to learn about more about homelessness, you have to put aside some of the, um, the ways people become homeless, whether it's a job loss or, uh, domestic abuse or something like that those are the things that I think people can say okay well we have to help those folks and we definitely do but then when you talk about addiction and your first reaction is well do they deserve help and how I personally and how uh, our organization has addressed it is we really don't care how somebody gets homeless they're homeless, and if there's something that we can do with our efforts that, and supporting the people that are, um, you know, helping and working in the homeless shelters, it may solve some of those other issues. I was talking with a group of folks, I believe it's a home, Hope, uh, the Hope House up in Bangor, and they address homelessness for, for addicts, and I was chatting with them, and and they mentioned the number of addicts that they have homeless and that they help and give shelter to every evening. And it was a large number, let's say like 70 or 80. And I said, oh, so these are recovering addicts. And they said, no, these are active addicts. And that's when I realized that these people are trying to get the, the addicts on a path of recovery. And so it's not just solving homelessness. It may be solving or helping somebody save a life. And that's the real power and, I think, the real story that's not out there.
3: You know, it's an interesting point because addiction is such a sticky issue. Addiction and um, mental illness and other some of these other things that might lead to homelessness. So sometimes it's important to just put those things aside and say, you know, the bottom line is we live in a state that gets very cold, gets very cold at night. And even if we lived in a warm state, people need to have a roof over their heads. They need to have a place that they can go to at the end of the day and get a warm meal. So you're – it's it's talking about sort of um, – dropping our value judgments in some ways.
2: It, it is, and, and it's setting aside some of those judgments to say really here's the issue, people are homeless. And however you get into the, the homeless situation, you're in a cycle, it could be job loss or it could be something that, you know, like we're talking about addiction or, or domestic abuse. And as I see the work of the homeless shelters is trying to break that cycle trying to help somebody get job training to get that job so they're no longer homeless. Somebody trying to get in a better domestic situation, a safer situation so they're no longer homeless. Maybe getting somebody into a recovery program so they're no longer homeless because now they can you know function better in society. Um, as we were looking at putting the Camden national name behind the homeless efforts, we had to just kind of cast that aside and say we're going to focus on homeless homelessness. And there's a lot of great that can happen from that if we don't put our own judgments against it. And I've been pleased to say that that's been just a great reaction that we've seen.
3: In my own medical practice, I've actually cared for young women with children who have been homeless themselves. They've described living at a campground for a summer or living um, in a motel space for a summer. And these aren't women and I just, these happen to be the women that I've dealt with. It doesn't mean that men are not similar. These aren't women that have done anything wrong, per se. They're just women who have been perhaps working a minimum wage job, don't have enough money for a security deposit, trying to deal with daycare. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to live a life. And yet one of the things that I've seen is that sometimes it's incredibly difficult to ask for help before you go kind of too far down a road that, that leads you to not having a place to live. And that's a tough situation.
2: Right. Uh, absolutely. And and I, I just sit back and think is you know think of being that parent, and you're trying to push and and trying to do it on your own. And as you said that, then it may go a step too far, and all of a sudden that you can't even afford that campsite, or the campsite closes for the season, and then you're truly homeless. And then they have to seek help out of necessity. So there's a lot of different things that we can address, just starting with that focal point from homelessness.
3: So you're interesting to me because you're a bank president. You're a dollars and cents kind of guy. And I know that Camden National has a community focus. So community has always been important to your organization. But you could very easily have driven by that hotel and not really even noticed the the school bus and not really kind of put these things all together. What in your background caused you to be sensitive enough to kind of be picking up on these needs?
2: I guess I've never really thought about it. Maybe it's always been that. I know my, my parents are always very, uh, uh, you know, giving and active in their community, um, and they set a great example for me that way. Um, I, you know, just my family, I think, are, are, we're focused at that. And, and I think it's a little bit of growing up in Maine. Um, yes, you can be a bank president, but uh, there's always something or, or there's a good grounding going on all the time. Uh, And I think a lot of business leaders in the state that something's unique is that, um, you know, we live in our communities. We aren't living out in a big suburb and taking an hour ride into the city to do our jobs. When we go shopping, we're shopping amongst customers and in my case shareholders. And so to me, that gives a personal accountability that I personally feel in the community. Uh, And maybe what that results in is a sensitivity to something like this.
3: Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Old Town.
3: So that's that's very interesting that you ended up kind of right in the middle and right near Bangor, which is, as mm. you've said, one of these places that has very active homeless shelters. And now you've moved out to the coast where you might think perhaps with a little bit more wealth, with a little bit more wherewithal, that it wouldn't be as much of a problem. And yet it's everywhere.
2: Right. And I think growing up in Old Town and actually now going back and seeing a community that was built around shoe shops and mills, and there was a vibrancy when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s there, to now that all the shoe shops are gone. Uh, the mill is essentially down to a, a few hundred, or maybe a hundred or so people from, at times it was probably closer to a 1,000 way back when. Uh, and you see a community change. And and so when I then go home to the Camden-Rockport area, I see that, that, that big difference that we have in the state of Maine. And, um, and now that, uh, you know, we even now have a branch in Old Town. And so I've kind of truly come home, both personally and business-wise, to it. And I think it does give that sense. How can I help? How can I make an impact? And, and fortunately, I work in an organization that supports that.
3: It, it seems to me, knowing some of the um, financial leaders in the state, that there really is – you guys seem to have more heart than, than many – um, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Yellow Light Breen, who recently um, changed jobs, and I think he now works for the Maine Community Foundation, yes, but he does. was very well-known, main Maine Development Foundation, very well-known, I believe he was associated with Bangor Savings. Yes. Um, and of course, I'm a doctor, so I don't know all the financial mm. ins and outs and all of this, but I, having paid attention to this. I'm impressed, you know, I'm impressed because it, it feels like it's an important thing that people understand that money isn't just, it's not a hard, cold cash currency, it's a means of living a life.
2: Hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's one thing that I'm proud of, um, being in the community banking industry, and, and last year I was chairman of the Maine Bankers Association uh, for all the community banks. We have 9,000 uh, Maine residents that are employed by community banks. They give tens of thousands of hours of volunteer time each year. And I think we do about a million dollars collectively each year of donations. And talking with my colleagues and fellow community bankers, we take that term community banker very seriously. And whether it's, uh, no matter where you live, if you see a, a, a race or a walk for the homeless or... Breast cancer awareness, or raising money, or looking at some of the boards of, of nonprofits and community organizations, typically you see a banker on that. I think the good thing is, though, and I th- I believe for most banks, we're not requiring our employees to go do this. We don't say go serve on this board or go <laughs> hike <laughs> on this Saturday. Uh, we put the word out and say, here's an organization, they're having this cause going on, if you'd like to be involved, come. And, and it's just remarkable that you see these events going on, and it's not just Camden National Bank, but several community banks show up all the time. Um, and I think that dates back, and, and especially when you look at smaller communities, the bank is an important part of each town that we serve. And it could be larger communities like Portland or Lewiston-Auburn area or Bangor, but even smaller ones, like Machias or Callis or Jonesport, other areas like that. And and to me, I think that's part of what we do in our industry.
3: You raise a good point. You know, we've been talking about how banks can help um, with various community-based causes, but you also employ the people who... Live in your towns, and I, I actually I was just thinking of patients that I have who have worked for um, their local banks for a number of years, and this has been a good, solid, steady source of employment. They've been happy. They they are loyal employees. They have been able to raise their families on the um, the salaries that they receive, and and it's a, it's it's an interesting and important way that um, banking has really created sustainability.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and challenge, um, in, in all of the organizations, our banking organizations in the state, uh, not only is it the face of, uh, that most people see the bank, the, the branch, uh, we have major technology departments going on offering challenging careers, financial departments, which was kind of my career track coming up through. And it's truly still, I believe, um, a, a, an industry where you can start off at the entry level being a teller and if you're a hard worker and ambitious and have a lot of tenacity to keep learning you can go all the way to be the CEO and we do that by supporting training people having tuition reimbursement programs and that's throughout the industry we do that so a lot of times I I feel the banking industry isn't known for the great not only great jobs but the great careers we do here.
3: Which is really important for a state like Maine because if we're not if we're not making the shoes that we once made or, you know, making the paper in the amount that we m- once made or, you know, we don't have the same types of um, employment opportunities, there have to be others that come in to Absolutely. fill that void. Absolutely. So in addition to helping with uh, people who have no homes, you're helping people who actually have homes and want to be able to keep those homes and want to continue to build lives here in Maine. How many people do you think you've helped with your new program?
2: Uh, Well, I don't know the exact uh, number of people, but so far in the first six months of the program, we've uh, donated to various homeless shelters uh, over $20,000 at this point. And we're hoping, obviously, that uh, with the home buying season still going, still going strong, that by the time we close out 2015, that it will be a, a well double of that. Uh, we've set no limit. Actually, more the better, because I think it shows, uh, you know, really money getting to the right places. It was interesting when, I, when we spoke to a lot of the folks in the homeless shelters as we were rolling this out, because we really didn't know if $100 at a time would make a difference. And one, one executive director of a homeless shelter sat there looking at me a little skeptical. And he said, So, what do we have to do to get this money? I said, Well, nothing. We'll come by with a check and, and you take it. So, what do I have to report back? What am I restricted in using it? And we said, No, this is just you, you're the experts. You do with it what you want. And he said, It's great. He said, and I, because I was asking, would $100 make an impact? He said, Having $100, no matter what size shelter, to do with it what the, the management wants of that shelter to do with it is extremely important. It's not restricted by some of the grants and all. And so that made me feel really good that uh, no matter what size donation that a particular shelter may get, that it is actually unrestricted they can do with it and put it to the exact need that's needed at that point in time.
3: And have they shared with you some of the things that they're spending this money on?
2: Oh, they have. Um, You know, a lot of the shelters are, it goes into really just managing operations. Again, you think about homeless shelter, you may just think of the the beds that they provide, but they're also providing food. And so it can go into that. Others are putting into programs to help the actual um, residents there get back on their feet. And that was one thing that I've seen. There's... uh, I visited one shelter, it was a family shelter, so uh, uh, single mothers or and their children, or at least couples, uh, and there were a group of women there that were getting jobs cleaning houses um, to to make ends meet, get up on their, their feet again, if you will, and they started saying, well, if we could collaborate and create a business around it, so they even within this, they had the sense of entrepreneurship, and so some of the money will go to help them develop that if they need to.
3: Greg, how can people find out about Hope at Home and the other programs that are being supported by Camden National Bank?
2: Yes, you can. First of all, visit any branch uh, within Camden National Bank, or uh, for specifically Hope at Home, is to uh, go online. Hope at Home with the A T spelled out dot com, uh, or our main website Camden dot com, and there'll be a link to our Hope at Home website there.
3: Well, I'm just thrilled that you have taken an idea and really turned it into something positive for the community. Um, The $20,000 that Camden National has already um, given to the homeless shelters in the state, and hopefully the additional $20,000 for the second half of the year, um, I'm sure that it's going to good use. And um, I guess what this just reminds me is that really If you have an idea you can turn it into something you don't you don't have to sit back and wonder why the world is going in the wrong direction you can kind of set it right in your own way so i appreciate the the time that you have spent on this program we've been speaking with greg dufour the president of camden national bank and also um the individual who put into place the innovative hope at home program Um, for which Camden National Bank donates $100 to homeless shelter in the community of each new homeowner. Thanks so much for coming on the program and for the work you do.
2: Thank you. Love,
0: Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of REMAX by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires and dreams, and make sure that the home that you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way, because while moving is one of the more stressful life events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why, when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay. If you don't have fun doing something, why do it at all go to marylibby.com for more information
3: you have been listening to love Maine radio show number 212 homeward bound our guests have included thomas patachek and greg dufour for more information on our guests and extended interviews visit lovemainradio.com love main radio is downloadable for free on itunes for a preview of each week's show sign up for our e-newsletter and like our love main radio facebook page follow me on twitter as dr lisa and see my running travel food and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of LoveMain Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Homeward Bound show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, McPage, Apothecary by Design, The Rooms, and Mary Libby. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Alby. Our editorial producer is Kelly Clinton. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis, and our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. We leave you with the song Be In Love by Portland Maine's Dominic
4: Anzalosa Hey, hey, what can I say? Love is the way Love is the way And hey, hey, I'm crossing my heart For those in the I said I'm crossing my heart And hey, hey, we're out of our minds To be in the spine In this age and time And hey, hey, we're talking to you You're hearing this too I said I'm talking to you And I've been around the world once or twice before we found in seeking more. I promise you this. Mm-hmm, yeah. Money can't touch the peace within a
1: kiss.
4: Hey hey, what can I say? Love is the. can touch a piece within a kiss. No the treaty can touch a peace within a kiss. The answer's in love.